Welcome to another life-affirming episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates, and we're here to give meaning to your otherwise brief and bleak existence on this planet. On today's show, we are reviewing Clint Eastwood's box office weapon of mass destruction, American Sniper, and introducing a new segment in which I recommend a beer pairing for the film we review. Then in special features, we will discuss actors who direct, those who have pulled it off, those who haven't, those who should, and those who should not. And finally, we will wrap up the show as we always do with a couple film recommendations. But first, since the 2015 Academy Awards exist in some nether region where they are in the past for you, the listener, but in the future for us... Chris and I are going to take a moment to discuss Hollywood's most illustrious and narcissistic award show of the season by talking about it as if it already happened. So, Hunter, first up, we've got uh, Best Supporting Actor, and it went to J.K. Simmons, which Absolutely. I was uh, I was pretty happy about. I thought he gave a wonderful performance in Whiplash and uh, definitely deserved it. He's He's, you know, one of those character actors that has been around forever, like he... Uh, elevates any movie that he's in and he did a wonderful job as, as Fletcher in this movie. I did kind of like, uh, you know, that, that little interaction that he had at the end of his speech, you know, they were, they were starting to play him off and he wasn't done. So um, I, I mean, I guess it shouldn't have come as any surprise to us, but he actually found a chair. I don't know where he got it up on stage and threw it at the orchestra a, because they were trying to play him off before he was done and B because they were off tempo and, Gosh darn what it. A, no, what a great Oscar moment. Yeah. And I was curious where that chair came from, too. It was actually the chair that President Obama sat in at the RNC when Clint Eastwood was talking to oh, him. Oh, yeah, okay. It, that it, chair. it so, looked familiar. Yeah. But. So Clint Eastwood had that chair. Uh, supporting actress, also another deserving person, Patricia Arquette. And the thing is, is she was just so excited by it that she was just like her sister. And she just started convulsing and they had to give her a adrenaline shot. And that truly amazed me that she was so excited about it, that she had that reaction. But congratulations, which, which is weird because she's been winning all of them. But she's been she's well. Been the Oscars different. The Oscars different. It's a I, different experience. But congratulations, so. Patricia. Yeah, and uh, you know another win that I'm actually not ashamed of the Academy uh, giving giving the Oscar to at all was uh, Wes Anderson for the Grand Budapest Hotel for best original screenplay. I thought his acceptance speech was great. He's been giving these these wonderful, lively, weird, almost uh, Wes Anderson stand-up speeches uh, at all the award ceremonies he's been winning um, awards at. And uh, this one I thought was amazing. It was amazing how charming the man could be dropping so many F-bombs. Oh, absolutely. That was ins- incredible. Um, and, and the thing that was most interesting and entertaining to me was they didn't even beep him. You know, he was just so charming like Ray Fiennes in... The, the film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, uh-huh. um, that they, they were fine with it. They didn't even know it was F-bombs until afterwards. Yeah. And, and then at the end, whenever, you know, he he bowed and started walking off and they started playing the music and he slowed down into slow motion and it took him like two and a half minutes to get off stage. That was pretty cool, too. No, absolutely amazing. Uh, also pretty cool is Julianne Moore finally getting recognized for her work in Still Alice, even though she's won multiple awards. This is kind of the, a lifetime achievement. Academy Award yes, ab- win. Absolutely. And I really think that this was the Academy finally saying sorry for not awarding her for the Lost World Jurassic Park. <laughs> You're probably right. I I think there were just ballads. You know, there were hanging chads in that, that year. That, that year. And yeah. this is finally them saying sorry. This is for a lifetime of work, particularly that picture also as, in, as well as nine months. Right. Another good one. Right. With Hugh Grant? Is that? And what? Robin Williams. Okay. Yes. Oh, gosh. Hey, Robin Man, Williams. Never saw Jeff it. I was, yeah. I was far too young to see and that movie. And Tom Arnold. Oh, well, Yeah. Yeah. Who, oh, you know, gosh. maybe one day will receive an, his Lawn Dew Oscar. 
Then we've got uh, winning best actor, Eddie Rainman. They can't see you blank on, on this, Chris. Think about it. Ed, Think Ed, Eddie Rainman. Rain he plays Stephen Hawking, people. Okay, get it? It's a, it's a funny joke. Speaking of funny, I was, I was fully expecting Boyhood to win Best Director for Richard Linklater. However, he was not even able to compete because he was attacked with a steel chair backstage and replaced by Clint Eastwood. A lot of chair attacks. A lot this. of chair attacks in the show. And again, it was the same chair that was once occupied by President Obama. So congratulations to Clint Eastwood for your third Best Director Oscar, even though you weren't even nominated beforehand. But, you know, you yeah, snuck you, in and won it. You really, you really stole that Oscar. And speaking of stealing Oscars, um, let's talk about the best picture. So given Hollywood's long masturbatorial history of awarding best picture to films about Hollywood and its industry, uh, I think it really came as no surprise that Birdman received the top honor. What was more surprising, though, let's face it, not a total shock, was Kanye West storming the stage in protest to remove the Oscar from Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu's hands to declare the Lego movie was without question the best motion picture of the year. Wake up, you old farts. Kanye, you just continue to steal the show. You do. And, you know, I, I have to agree with the sentiment. Wake up, old farts. It was the Lego movie. Come on. And speaking of old farts, let's jump into our review of Clint Eastwood's latest film, American Sniper. So grab a chair, perhaps one hurled at you by a furious J.K. Simmons, and have a listen. Hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. Her arms aren't swinging, she's carrying something. Yeah, she's got a grenade, she's got an RKG Russian grenade. You say it to the kid? You say a woman and a kid? You got eyes on this? Can you confirm? Negative. Your call. They fry you if you're wrong. Choosing to review American Sniper in mid-February potentially poses a challenge we may not have faced had we reviewed it a month ago when the film was released. I'm referring, of course, to the onslaught of opinions in the media, both social and otherwise. It seems everyone has strong feelings about this film, and those feelings tend to be drawn along political lines. Narrowing the conversation to such a binary outlook throws things like subtlety and nuance out of the conversation. When discussing a film, there's so much more to praise or criticize than how it aligns with your personal worldview. So tell me, Hunter, as a cinematic experience, how did American Sniper hit you? You know, it didn't hit me nearly as hard as whenever you just said binary. The, <laughs> just the dexterity and the subtlety in which you use the binary, the word binary, it really did something for me. So I want to thank you for that. I'm really all warm and fuzzy you're, right you're now. You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. Yes, it was an experience I haven't had at the cinema in a long time. So thank you, Chris. But as far as the film itself... I think I'm going to do something I normally wouldn't do and maybe get my star ranking first and then work backwards. I would give it out of five stars, maybe three and a half. My overarching opinion of it is that it started off straight out of the can Hallmark movie making a lifetime, lifetime. Very much. Yeah. Very. Life, lifetime movie channel. But by the time it found its footing, which was, I think, him in Iraq. I thought I thought I felt it found its footing and it finally it was the movie it wanted to be. 
but the, and the, the original part, the, the build up to it was, could have potentially been really good. It wasn't just that it was, it was bad to begin with. It could have been really good. It was just mishandled. I would say that I, th- I would say that it's a distant grouping. You might say it didn't quite hit the target. I'm I'm very interested in, in this conversation. We haven't spoken about this film at all. Not a not a word. It's one that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you my star rating right off the bat. Uh, I'm gonna make you earn it. So this is this is kind of like my seal training. I have yes. to earn your star yeah. ranking. I, I've got the hose in the hand right now. Um, you know, it, it was impossible because of when we saw it to enter it with a totally blank slate. But I, I attempted to I've attempted to avoid, you know, most of the conversation about it in general, because I feel like much like something like maybe Zero Dark Thirty a couple of years ago, um, it seems like a lot of the conversation has nothing to do with the film at all and um, just doesn't add to uh, to that. So uh, I was trying to enter it as as blink as I could while still knowing, you know, it's a Clint Eastwood film. He's a man that is sort of well-known for working within the Hollywood industry, the Hollywood machine. You know, he he still continues to make films and get budgets because he operates very lean, very, you know, he's famous for doing a couple of takes and moving on. Econ- yeah, he's extremely economical. And in fact, hopefully I'll remember to mention this later, is his tendency for economy might have actually cost this picture an Academy Award, but we can get to that here in a little bit. And I, I think that's exactly, I mean, that his tendency for economy, as you said, uh, is a real problem for me in this film. Oh, it's not, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's not the only, the only thing. I mean, I think starting off the bat, you, you mentioned, you know, that weird slippery opening. I mean, it feels like, it feels like a lifetime movie. It feels like your very formulaic biopic, albeit this doesn't think God like, spend half an hour on him as a child and sort of build him up, you know, from, um, from birth to death. Well, Although, and it didn't, and didn't have to, it just have to give way to, to more parts. Uh, I actually did not come into this as a blank slate. I actually came in really wanting to like it because I like Clint Eastwood and he's been really hit or miss since million dollar baby. Actually, I would say he's been more miss. In fact, his picture just before this, that came out this summer was Jersey boys and that was, uh, you know, that would that was a, a train wreck, and so I, I I just always want to like what Clint Eastwood is doing, but so often it just seems like he's going senile by the choices he makes, and he's just trying to make as many movies as possible. And so I was wanting to like this going into it, and then the very first scene slash shot was them playing the Warner Brothers logo with Middle Eastern chanting over it. And at the very first scene, I was cringing a little bit because, like, there's no originality or subtlety to this thinking. This is I've seen this movie before. Isn't that how Argo began? That's actually that's a really good like I I found myself throughout a lot of the Iraq scenes um, just there was and it wasn't even as much heavy handed score, which you get a lot of times with something like this, where, you know, they'll get real dramatic music in some be it like beating drums for mm-hmm. uh, for maybe an attack or um, strings, swelling strings when it's supposed to be emotional, whatever. There wasn't as much of that, at least that I noticed. What I noticed more was there was a lot of just sound design, manip- manipulative sound design, trying to like in that actual that opening scene, which I think everyone probably saw, even if you haven't seen the film, probably saw as a, almost a teaser trailer for the film. I believe it's the first mm-hmm. thing that, yeah, that came out. And I haven't gone back and watched it. That was actually something I wanted to do to compare. Um, but there's this 
sort of just percussive, these percussive sounds, these things that aren't really score, but just atmosphere to give it this dark, like, uh, feeling that I didn't think it needed like those and those sorts of things bother me a lot. Well, and it's in this filmmaking 101 kind of kind of approach. And I think that, like we said, just goes back to the economy of his style is that it's it's not trying to find something different, a different way to tell the story or an unexpected way to tell the story. And that's why, like I said a second ago, from the very first moment, I would felt like I'd seen this movie. Before. But I don't even I don't even know if economy is the right excuse for that, though, because my feeling was that cut all of that out, just let it be like him. Uh, and when I say him, I mean, Bradley Cooper as Navy SEAL sniper, Chris Kyle dealing with this really, I mean, you have the bare elements that you have there are just ripe for drama and tension. And you don't need, like, I didn't feel that you needed anything to heighten that further to like, let you know, like, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna have a hard time deciding whether or not he kills this woman and child. You know, it just wasn't necessary. By the way, we should mention that this conversation will be rife with spoilers. So if you haven't seen the picture yet, you're one of the three people who haven't seen it, uh, be forewarned. Okay. So that's, uh, apparently we're going spoilers. <laughs> we're going full on spoiler, baby. So you go from that, from that moment into, uh, going way back in time to write the class, the classic, you yeah. know, transition to a flashback. Chris Kyle hunting on his assumed, let's assume first hunt with his mm-hmm. father because of, you know, some of the, the life lessons that his father is teaching him mm-hmm. about how to handle your gun and that sort of thing. And, from there on, you know, I would say at least the next half hour has that very paint by numbers sort of feel to it. A, a classic origin story kind of condensed down. And a lot of that throughout, like, and, and you have, I think it does get, it gets a little better as, as it goes on and it kind of, you get into the, let's call it present day Chris Kyle, the present day of where we came into it, the Chris Kyle, who is a Navy SEAL. Um, it, it gets a little better from there, but there are just so many problems that I had throughout this film with the script by Jason Hill. Yeah, and then and, and I, I'm glad you pointed that out because the the origin part, the him growing up in Texas, growing up in Oklahoma, knowing guys like Chris Kyle, and, and in fact, I know a, a Marine who I would say it, you know he's not nearly as successful, but he he is that kind of guy. It almost offended me how rote this was, how, how, how traditional, you know, this is, this is Hollywood people who are imitating. This is what, you know, well, mid- and, small town Texas life is like, and, th- yeah, and, and this is how a, they grow up. There was a weird sort of like, I, I don't know if it's just for me that Bradley Cooper, who I actually have kind of struggled with as an actor in the past, he kind of transcended uh, what was mostly a mediocre script. Um, particularly in dialogue. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought found some, uh, you know, I was talking about nuance in, in this, in the intro, I found some nuance to the Chris Kyle character. He's not, uh, the, the one thing that really kept me in the movie throughout was he's not just GI Joe American hero. And I mean, you get that from the opening scene with the, the hard choices that he has to make. Uh, but then it feels like the world that he is living in, uh, casts him as that and doesn't not in not in any sort of ironic way or any sort of um, way that's it, it, like it's almost as if Chris Kyle is in a film that is more simplified than 
who he is. Yeah. The world around him is more simplified than that character. And, you know, my thing with it, the opening part is really exemplified. It's it's kind of lost opportunities. It's really exemplified by the uh, sheepdog speech. The sheepdog speech really and, could and have been I a think... true great cinematic speech. And it's just treated so casually and offhandedly, almost just to use to justify the rest of the movie. And, it, and they just rush through it, both in the script and in the film itself. But I think, I mean, that that goes right back to that economy. I, I have had, I, it's only been a couple of days since I've seen the film, so I haven't spoken too much with people about it. But that speech comes up with every person I speak to mm-hmm. who has seen it. And it really it's seems... It's great stuff, yeah. Well, it, it really seems to be like that, depending on where you land uh, with liking or disliking the approach of telling the story, um, it, the litmus test is, how did you feel about that speech? How did you feel about the speech? How did you feel about the way it was handled? Because um, I, I love the speech. I thought the speech was great, and I actually knew about it ahead of time. But the way it's 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 kind of as if you had this big monologue-worthy moment. And sometimes you need those Hollywood moments. You need those big monologue-worthy moments. And it wasn't treated that way. It was just used as a voiceover during three or four other scenes intercutting, as if they you know, just didn't have any time. Yeah, maybe it's the way it's handled. For me, it felt very, you know, it's instead of showing, it's telling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, instead of allowing that to, um, in some more dynamic way, uh, be be shown to the audience, it's saying these are, and, and that happens throughout from mm-hmm. from point to point. Like, I feel like if you had a outline of the basic story, the basic screenplay, um, a lot of it is just like, okay, we have this now, um, 15 pages down the road, we need this thing to happen. Um, do you want to set it up? No, let's just let it happen. And then people will, you know, accept they'll, it. They'll there's a lot of that going on. Well, and for me, that speech was kind of force fed. It wasn't earned. Had it been earned, I think it would have worked better. For instance, the way it was filmed was they intercut with him saving his little brother who's getting beaten up right. and getting that speech. Maybe if they showed his little brother getting beaten up and then him getting in trouble and then his dad talking to him afterwards about it, it would have felt earned. But at that point, it just like they were trying to get through it. Um, the little brother character starts out as a, a main sidekick, would mm-hmm. you say? And, he, you know, he's he's with him there in the uh, beginning when he's trying to be a rodeo cowboy mm-hmm. sort of guy. Right. Uh, he's there in the flashback uh, as sort of a... A main piece, you know, he is he is sort of the pawn that allows that uh, speech to happen. And then he disappears for a while. And then we have one of those uh, outline moments where it's like, okay, this is the point where the wife played by Sienna Miller Mm -hmm. uh, needs to mention that his brother has now enlisted and is uh, going going to wreck. And the whole way all of that was presented felt so ham fisted to me. And so like it just, they needed, they knew they needed to say this thing. And so let's, let's just present a, a graphic on a news package on CNN, have Santa Miller see it at this point. I don't remember. Uh, there's several of these phone conversations where he's, where he's like in battle and he's just like, you know what? I'm going to call my wife. And it was, I don't know if this is something that regularly happens, but I would imagine like a sniper is not going to be, uh, sitting on a rooftop and then, you know, looking for, looking for the bad guys. And then, ah, you know what? I'm bored. I'm going to, I'm just going to give her a ring and see what's going on. Well, I guess that would be better than him playing Farmville. (laughs) I suppose, I, I suppose so. Um, but 
my point is the way that they present that information uh, was was rough. And then you don't even you know, you kind of get this. Oh, no, like my little brother's over here. He's the he's the sheep in, mm-hmm. in the whole metaphor. Now he's in Iraq uh, going up against the wolves. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, supposed to be some sort of uh, tension there and drama. But I didn't feel it, and and you and don't it's really summarily dismissed. It's it's dismissed, and then you see him again, maybe twenty minutes down the road, and then you never see him again in the film. If I'm if I remember correctly, no, I don't believe so. No, it's very odd, very sloppy. I felt well, it's very sloppy. Here's the way I would put it: overarching, and actually, this kind of describes Clint Eastwood certainly in the the latter stages of his career, is that he is very allegiant to the script. Why do you why do you think that is? Do you think that is because he doesn't feel like he has the ability to transcend? Honestly, what's I really on the page? Do, I really don't know what it is. Maybe it's just that he he's not a uh, and this 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 is going to sound worse than it is. Maybe he's just not the most sophisticated script reader. Yeah. And so it's one of those things. Again, the economy of it. He wants to get a movie done. Yeah. And so as long as the script doesn't have a lot of grammar errors and misspellings and things like that, as long as it's it's there and he can film it, then he'll go film it. And that's how he feels about it. And so when you have a picture like Unforgiven, which the script as presented to him is essentially perfect, then the film itself winds up perfect. And then you have a picture like Million Dollar Baby where there's a lot of dialogue problems with the script because it's Paul Haggis. And uh, who's, I think, has been exposed in recent years. But you have a lot of dialogue problems in the script, and he films it as is. And you get you still have those dialogue problems in the, the picture itself. And then for uh, another one, like, uh, what was it? Letters from Iwo Jima. He actually wanted to film the first draft, and the writer who wrote it said, no, nah, I'd kind of need another. I'd kind of like to take another second draft. He just wants to get started. And that's how this script felt. I don't know how many drafts they went through, but I kind of feel like he's like, okay, yeah, this is a script. Let's go film it. That seems to be his approach throughout his career. You know, like, uh, he's not, he's almost a journeyman director in some ways, uh, in, and in that, I mean, you know, like like I touched on earlier, he just he gets the job done. He makes the film. The film happens. I don't feel like uh, there's really necessarily Clint Eastwood fingerprints on stuff other than maybe what he decides to, to pick up and direct. Right. You know, exactly. There's, there's a theme of of manhood, of machismo. Of- well, he's very much, and he's been referred to this in the past, is I would say he's very much almost the John Ford of this generation. John Ford was the same way in that he would film Those are a... fighting words. <laughs> no, I think he would film a script. Well, maybe Howard Hawks is another example, is he would film a script as given, and they always had a consistency of reaffirming masculinity and looking at variations of the masculine idea. Howard, so that's Howard what it Hawks tra- maybe maybe more, although I know... Uh, I recently watched uh, Ball of Fire, which was directed by Howard Hawks, written by Billy uh-huh, Wilder. Yeah. And there was, I guess, a, a bit of uh, trouble on set because Wilder was always hanging around making sure Hawks didn't uh, didn't butcher his immaculate script. The point being is that Clint Eastwood is attracted to these stories about dudes yeah. and, and about the idea of masculinity itself. And so he just, he just yeah, this is a script. Let's get to work. Let's go do a job. I don't think he views it as an art. And so that was the, the idea behind the John Ford comparison is he, he views it as a job. And so his job is to take a script and provided the script is a, a nice blueprint. He can take that blueprint and make a movie out of it. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's fair, but I would say to compare him to John Ford, then in Maybe it works in that scenario, mm-hmm. but I think John Ford was a much better 
uh, director in every other respect. He was maybe and certainly a better judge of script, but as far as his knowing, relation, well, to not script. not yeah. But what I'm saying is beyond the script in in you know just a visual aesthetic, which a lot of Eastwood pictures lack. Um, other than surprisingly, like something like Million Dollar Baby, which I thought was very you know it, it deals a lot in shadows and it felt. Uh, that that film felt very uneastwood mm-hmm. in in very a lot of ways. Very purposeful in the in the cinematography. Yeah, yeah which I, I feel like you don't often get. Um, or uh, the the editing, the editing of John Ford movies is uh, just just wonderful. Uh, he knows how to exactly at the right moment um, do something to advance the story forward or. Um, you know, those, those sorts of things, you know, just make something that an edit that feels great that, uh, and, and that's something that I'm sort of sensitive to. I, mm-hmm. I think most people don't, don't notice it, but as a video editor, um, I, I always look for those things and when they, they work and they work seamlessly and flawlessly and actually, uh, to a great effect, like I just love it. And that's something that I don't think you often get with Eastwood. You definitely don't get in this film. Um, and, and that's, you know, something that, by, um, you know, just the approach of the way this film is structured, you, you can say it, it's very sort of sloppy in first, you've got that opening that we, that we spoke of. And then once he gets shipped off to Iraq, it's, he does what four tours mm-hmm. and there's just little slivers of home life in between. Now, see, actually I disagree with it. Um, I get, I guess I kind of cut you off there, but I kind of liked at once that once the movie found its footing and it found its footing once he was in Iraq. And I don't think this is purposeful, but it kind of reflects his life and that his life was uh, aimless until he finally, he, he found himself in a place he belonged, which was battle. Once, once the movie was in Iraq and that part was happening, I thought by and large the picture found it, found itself and it became good for me. And that's when I started to like it. See, to me, it just felt like by, um, maybe even the second tour, it felt like it was getting to be, uh, certainly by the third and fourth, um, sort of this tableau to tableau, um, sort of, oh, we're in another firefight. I mean, there's, there's one, I think it's in his second tour where I realized halfway through, like, A, Nothing's really happening. Nothing important is happening. There's just guns being shot. And it was the most boring sort of like cameras locked off and guys just like running by firing. It it felt like um, it, it actually felt to me like a little little uh, backstory here on our our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you were, were in a feature film, a no budget feature film that um, I made with some friends, uh, some mutual friends back at the end of college. And we staged this fight scene that you were, you happened mm-hmm. to be in and we entered it, uh, not even thinking about choreography or thinking about any of that until like the, the night of that we showed up. And as a result, we just ended up locking off the camera and saying, okay, uh, let's just shoot a bunch of things and then, you know, we'll throw it together and it'll work. And what it turned out to be was a mostly mediocre Fight scene, fight scene, yeah. you know, heightened by uh, the the score that we got to it made it certainly better. Somewhat passable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it felt like that, except Clint Eastwood is a veteran director. Um, he has and, a lot more time and money and pull. To yeah. Be able and to and make also better. And also the ability to have someone, you know, work with someone to uh, to plan that out. And it just it felt so so boring and so uninspired and just like I mean, it felt like, OK, well. Uh, this is the day that we're shooting this scene. So let's 
everybody, uh, you know, it felt like they're nine to five filmmaking. Exactly. Well, and, and actually, I'm glad that you just said that because that leads into what I was talking about earlier, I, wherever that it may cost this picture, the Academy Award, as I read an article that uh, they were asking Oscar experts, uh, you know, what was American Sniper's chances? And they said that there is this one scene in which Bradley Cooper cradles a toy baby. And the day of the, the day they were going to film that scene, they had one baby and the baby, the primary baby, and it kept crying. And so they couldn't get it to settle down or, or rather it just, you know, not the, it, they weren't able to work with that baby. And then baby number two, the backup baby wasn't working either. So Clint Eastwood finally just grumbled and said, oh, just grab the doll. And then Bradley Cooper wound up cradling a doll. And I didn't notice it while watching it. But whenever you look at the pictures, it is pretty obvious. And then apparently that news spread out just mm-hmm. prior to the uh, ballots going out and so they're saying that 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 bit of economic filmmaking him just having to get it done wound up costing the picture it's a far cry from like a stanley kubrick who'll do a who used to do 120 takes clint eastwood is just, or david fincher or yeah he just wants to get the he just wants to get the shot he wants to so that the, the, the whole the whole baby thing is like the one thing that i'd have been totally unable to avoid because it's been um you know kind of parodied everywhere across the internet maybe Maybe even SNL. I, I'm not sure. Like, I know I've seen it in a few places. Um, and to be perfectly honest, uh, that wasn't the worst part of that scene. Um, there were actually, and uh, here's, here's a question I have. So there's a scene before an earlier scene um, that I expected, fully expected to be that to be like the fake baby scene. And I'm pretty sure it was a fake baby, but it looked um, weird and chubby and gross and real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, so in, in that scene, I was like, oh, this is what people were, were getting kind of, all up in arms. About, yeah, yeah. People, people were getting upset about this. Isn't, this isn't that bad. In fact, the dialogue in the scene is far worse. The, it was the conversation that, uh, Chris Kyle and his wife are having about, she, he, he had called her, uh, when they were like, in the he was like in the back of a Humvee or the back mm-hmm. of, of something decides, oh, we're going into, you know, we're, we're going in to do some reconnaissance work or something. And I'm just going to call my wife, you know, another one of those moments, which even if they do happen, I, w- I will grant you this is even if they do happen, I doubt they happen whenever the individual knows that he's getting ready to yeah. go in an extremely yeah. dangerous environment. And they're close. They're yeah. close. Um, but then so in in that phone conversation, uh, she's preggers at the, mm-hmm. at the, the moment and she's just come out of the, the hospital and, um, he stops talking and then she's standing on the phone, just listening to this firefight. Mm-hmm. And my first thought is like, if I am her, maybe, maybe this is unrealistic, but I feel like if I was her, I would just hang up the phone. I wouldn't because Hold there's, on, yeah. there, there's nothing like, it's not going to be like, Oh, Hey, sorry about that. Uh, had had a little trouble, but we're, we're over it. Like it's only going to psychologically be worse the the longer you, you stay on that phone. Well, and, and, and what's interesting about that scene and the whole idea behind it is again, I don't know if that it was actually happened. Maybe he, maybe it happened in his book and you know, they filmed it, but that does feel a little bit like a trailer moment that yeah. they're going to have but, a caller okay, just so, at that point. So, in time. so what I, what I wanted to get to was, then um, this first scene with what I believe was also a, a baby doll, but I don't believe the uh-huh. one that everyone is uh, has been talking about. She says something like they're having this this conversation kind of and he's pretty closed off. And then she says, oh, is is he the one? Is he the one from that day when you called me? 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, how did you, how did you come to that conclusion? Like what, what clues? Oh yeah. You were, you were over in Iraq and, um, I heard some gunfire. So it must be this guy that we're seeing on TV right now. Gotta be the same dude. There's only, there's only like four people over there that, that you're really hunting down. Right. Like another one of those, just like, well, it's in the script. It's gotta happen. Right, uh, and his whole relationship with the uh, – I was getting ready to call him Mufasa, but Mustafa. Mustafa. Yeah, his whole relationship with Mustafa, that did seem a little Hollywood, and apparently uh, that, wa- that was completely fabricated because that guy did exist, but he was actually at – and he, he and I believe Chris Kyle were in the same areas at points, but whenever he was finally killed, it was elsewhere, and Chris Kyle said as much. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Because that – uh, so let, I, it was a cool dynamic. I liked it from a cinematic perspective. It was, but the, and maybe that's the thing is from a cinematic perspective is it works. There's a lot that I like about this, but then whenever they add the element of truth to it, then you think, oh, well, is, is this really true? And then you find out something like that. It was actually fabricated and it kind of, it, 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 it makes you question the authenticity of the picture overall. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in general, like when something is based on a true story, it doesn't bother me that. Uh, the truth is changed and altered mm-hmm. in, in this particular situation. Like I, I think it, it maybe does a little bit more um, just because it, there's a sensitive nature to uh, the story in general, mm-hmm. um, that particular thing, yeah, take it or leave it. I mean, uh, but the whole adversarial thing between the two of them uh, felt pretty underdeveloped to me. As well, I mean, like a lot of these, I guess, you know, it's it's not like uh, De Niro and Pacino in Heat, mm-hmm. where like they know about the other one. They know that the other one knows about them, that, that they're on. You know, it's just sort of like uh, single mindedly. Each of them is is like, oh, I got to get that guy. Yeah. And so then when OK, getting getting really into spoiler territory here, I suppose, in that final, you know, in his final fourth tour when he makes that uh crazy 2000 yard Mm -hmm. um shot which apparently he was fully capable of making it just wasn't mustafa in in real life that he hit but somebody else but apparently that actually happened but it was such a like the way that played out felt just so inconsequential to me almost like they a um it, it was very there there are a few moments throughout where um it's almost like Chris Kyle colon rogue Navy seal, um, you know, where, where it's just like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want. Cause I got the sniper rifle and I'm, and I'm, and I'm well trained and I'm yeah, not sure. And again, you know, having not read the book, I don't know if that actually happened wherever he would. Yeah. I, I don't either. And I don't, I mean, that's, that's not even, you know, I I'm speaking, but that does of, seem like a break, a breach of protocol to leave your post as it were, and then go and, and occupy well, a different and, and to also endanger everyone else, you know, that, that you're with. I understand uh, Mustafa is picking off guys and that, you know, that's upsetting, but you have to weigh, um, you have to weigh all of the, the factors it's uh, to, to go back to, to the word I was using earlier, the binary, like it seems like there was very much uh, a, a binary, uh, a, a binary here of like uh, in that they're reducing in, in his mind of like uh, good or bad, Mm -hmm. not, not okay. Well, what is the most good that can be done out of this? this What is the no idea of really sacrifice or any of that? It's, it's just like, there's the guy. um, 
And he's he has been there's almost this transition as as he goes from tour to tour of initially he is very much uh, concerned with, you know, defending American soldiers, defending America's freedom. And it seemed to me, at least, to sort of evolve into a uh, revenge into 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 all he wanted to do was uh, get Mustafa. And once he did, you know, then immediately he's like, I'm ready to come home. Mm hmm. And, I, and actually, you know, now that you point that out, that that's not really necessarily the most positive message that that it went from being an act of patriotism to an act of vengeance. And while one can certainly understand wanting to avenge your buddies. Yeah, no, that and that's very much I mean, and it, it went from that, champion and his patriotism to champion a, a, a sense of. Vengeance. Yeah. And that narrative device makes sense to me. I understand why it's easy. Like it's it's a good way to wrap all of that together. To, to put one face mm-hmm. on it. Um, but then whenever he does make the the shot, it just feels so like he says, oh, yeah, I see the guy. And, and everyone else is me. like, well, A, don't do it because you're going to give our position away. And B, like that shot is ridiculous. How can you even be sure that that's that's the guy? Like if this is your Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. if this is, uh, you know, that that guy who you've been chasing after the entire time, um, like you cannot be sure that it's him. It's not like it's not like you guys were texting each other. Uh, you you know, had some indication that back it was him. In, yeah. yeah, there's no indication at all. Nothing. Just there's a guy on a rooftop over there, and he's moving around, and you can kind of see him and make the shot. So he made the and then and then that was the instant relief of like, no, I I can pack up and go home. Yeah, it's, it's it was meant to be a moment of triumph, and again, I think like other things in the picture, didn't feel earned. Yeah. And okay, so then from there we get, uh, you know, after his uh, fourth and final tour, mm-hmm. um, he kind of he comes back home and he we finally get uh, a little bit of what I felt like was missing in the other like sort of in between moments mm-hmm. uh, of home life where you see the PTSD, you see like what has worn on him from uh, from all this, but then. Near instantly, like he goes, he goes and meets with a guy at, uh, at the VA, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then near instantly, it's like, oh, I'm cured now. And now I'm helping other people. And right. And, and not only, and then I'm cured now and I'm happy and not, and you know, it's, it would have felt better if it was like, this is his ongoing process of healing. Mm-hmm. This is that, you know, he still has his PTSD and I don't know if he, I guess he was never diagnosed. So we're just assuming here, but right. he, but he was throughout the picture portrayed as being really upset by his wartime experiences. But well, you're right about that. Is it, is it just there? He, he, he went from being in a bad place to being in a good place. Just yeah, like and, that. And for, for a movie that was so, uh, isolated in this one character, I mean, there's not a whole lot of characters that have much dimension other than Chris Kyle. Um, a lot of characters that come in and out, but, um, we're really just spending time with him. Mm-hmm. So it felt very, uh, very much like a disservice to him as be it the character or, uh, the, the real life, mm-hmm. uh, man to, to just say he came back, things were bad, things got good. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it was just easy peasy. Well, and speaking of easy peasy, the this isn't really a spoiler just because it's so much a part of the news, but then him winding up being killed by a fellow soldier while taking him out to a gun range. Yeah. That, uh, I think, you know, it was filmed in a very 
uh, uh, sinister way. You you had the wife looking out the door, seeing him getting ready to leave with this guy, well, and that guy he's just got he's just got a bad look to him. And then cut to black. Chris Kyle died that day. It should have hurt more, and it just it, it well it, it felt to me like the the perfect uh, lifetime movie bookend. It ended a little bit in the same way that it started with just the over over the top sort of like you can read from a million miles away uh what's happening where it's and Mm -hmm. and and also like it sort of turned on a dime you know like you get arguably the most um happy and recovered and you know that that scene just before um which which was kind of sweet although a little odd like that He's pulling a gun on his wife, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I believe unloaded. They're just, you know, yeah, they're just, they're, yeah, they're just, they're just Texans around. being Texans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're just goofing around and you know, it feels like, okay, he's actually, he's actually recovered. I wish I would have seen more of that, but mm-hmm. okay, this, but this better, feels, yeah. this feels good. And then, um, finally you get that, uh, you know, you, you get that and then it's like, oh, and now, and now he's dead. It, I, I think the, the the key word here in this entire conversation is just economy. And then, yeah. except for the Iraq portions, which it did, and to me, it did feel like Clint Eastwood cared about. But a lot of this this movie, it's just he he's in such a rush to finish it to do it, and it's not like he's got a sense of urgency, like he's really nervous about it. It's just okay, you know, we'll go to work, we'll make a movie. And I think a picture like this could have been a lot better if more time was spent on the script, certainly in getting those things fixed, but then also on just the filming itself. Yeah. And, and the picture suffered for it. The economy, I, I think it would have been interesting to see the economy placed on, okay, we we have four tours. Do we really need to spend as much time on each one? Or could we, could we lose some time somewhere and dedicate that to more the psychological, the, the personal struggle of Chris Kyle mm-hmm. that, uh, that is going through like, um, which honestly could have been an easier and cheaper, you know, means of production as well. I'm sure because you, you could have done that with, you know, him in, um, you know, in four walled rooms, not out on the battlefield. Uh, but I don't know, like it's, I would say my, have I earned your star ranking yet? Yeah, sure. Let's, let's get into that. Um, I was happy to see that, um, it didn't totally turn me off because I was mm-hmm. honestly a little afraid of that going in, uh, that yeah, I was just full on lifetime movie. Yeah. yeah the, and you know, just because of the strong reactions that people have had. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a terrible movie. It's certainly not one that I'm going to recommend anyone see in a theater because it doesn't, it has nothing it about doesn't it. doesn't take advantage of the theatrical. No, experience, it has yeah. nothing about it that screams cinema on the big screen mm-hmm. or, or any of that. Um, I feel like it was a story that was worth being told and an intriguing and uh, complex character drama that doesn't really uh, doesn't really pay off. It doesn't like I feel like there was more to that character than what we got. So in your opinion, it doesn't really decide which one it wants to be. It just wants to, it just, it's, it's a few different war pictures just kind of stitched together. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's, if I, I don't think if this movie was on, uh, you know, HBO in nine months, I don't think there's a lot other than Bradley Cooper's performance that I would 
and, 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 and dedicate and, some time to. And actually, yeah, I, 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 you know, theoretically, we're we're going in the wrong direction here. But I kind of actually wanted to do this is finish on Bradley Cooper's performance because you indicated earlier that you've had a lot of trouble with him. I've had a lot of trouble with him just because he seems insert actor here in that's many a, ways, insert exactly. movie here. But the more I think about it, there's really nothing that it, that he's ever done that I can think of that felt that way to me. So he's almost like a person that I have a knee jerk dislike for but anytime i see him in something i like him and in this i thought he was absolutely marvelous yeah he really carried this on his shoulders he, he and, did and, very much and he probably added two and a half stars completely on his own just the quality of his performance even though the script surrounding him particularly whenever he was still back in texas hadn't been in the military yet didn't serve him he felt real he felt like those people that you and i know and have been around mm-hmm. the good old boy types it, it felt absolutely authentic and genuine and he was able to convey the mental anguish without being really overwrought about it. And yeah. it was and it was translating into a physical reaction. He was presenting us with information that probably wasn't in the script. Mm-mm. You know, he but he was able to get into that character and know, you know, how to kind of express what that character was probably you know, would be would be feeling in those situations and really rise above uh, bad dialogue, bad uh, pacing or, or at least mediocre, you know, it was, it was acceptable. This, I was like, if, if Bradley Cooper and he's, you know, honestly been the same way to me, Bradley Cooper's kind of always been the, uh, the guy insert actor here, as you said, this is sort of him proving that he's not that with the insert dialogue here, insert scene here, mm-hmm. sort of film. Well, and, and no, and, and that's the thing, is the picture feels like a series of vignettes, and he is the thread that keeps it all consistent. And so this this is real, this is truly his picture, I feel. Um, one thing that we, I think we do need to finish on is just how much money this picture has made. It's made over $300 million. It will eventually be the highest grossing picture from 2014, far and away the highest grossing uh, war picture regarding the Middle East and Afghanistan, and actually about war in general. The closest would be Lone Survivor, which came out last year. What do you think accounts for this? Is This is making 10 times as much as something like uh, the Hurt Locker or uh, Zero Dark Thirty. That's incredible. I honestly, I think it it sadly goes back to uh, what we what we were just discussing of uh, sort of this paint by number story. It's not it's not trying to say anything really. It's just it's telling the story of Chris Kyle in the most inoffensive way possible. Exactly. It's not too, it's not too hagiographic. It's not trying to make him out to be a saint in in one direction, nor is it going in the other direction, trying to paint him as a victim, which at face value, I would appreciate. However, it doesn't feel like it's doing that purposefully. It feels like it's just doing that because it couldn't make up its mind. Uh, I, I think that's the answer though, is it, it sort of isn't going to, just outright offend anyone. Like there are people who are up in arms about it, but they're, you know, they're, they're chronically up in arms. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's not extreme enough in the opposite direction of those people to, uh, to raise, raise hell. It's not, uh, it's not the last temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just sits in this middle ground and, you know, it kind of feels to me like, um, back when breaking bad was on the air, 
like every every season it would come back, you would see the articles about like, oh, well, let's look at statistics, statistically who's watching Breaking Bad. And it was, you know, middle America sort of, you know, a lot, obviously a lot of people in Albuquerque and in, mm-hmm. in New Mexico, but um, it wasn't the people on the coasts who were making Breaking Bad a uh, a big picture. It was the people in in our our home of flyover states, mm-hmm. and I I think this is actually I'm going to have to disagree with you here because this picture, whenever it came out, it came out uh, in early January and made ninety million dollars in its first weekend, which is summer blockbuster territory. But it actually came out earlier, and I I think it came out on Christmas or something like that in New York and Los Angeles. It's only in a couple of theaters, and it broke records for individual well shoot me down yeah exactly. I, I, I clearly have no idea what i'm talking about but it doesn't you know uh i don't remember the numbers i looked at them briefly uh i believe yesterday on box office mojo uh generally you know the international market is what can really put a picture in the black mm-hmm. these days a lot of times and it's not doing terribly great internationally which yeah not a bit isn't not a lot much, of surprise there, is, yeah. isn't much of a surprise but at the same time, being the highest grossing box office earner of the year, which I guess is kind of unfair. Because it was a down year, but it was and it's earning most of its money in 2015. Right, exactly. Uh, but but still like that, that's saying something when more and more we are moving to. Uh, this international box office. Absolutely. And, and again, it's just more the genre of the pictures. It's just absolutely crushing everything else in its genre by far. And I think I would feel better about it doing real well if I felt like it it was trying to just do an accurate portrayal of a an American hero as opposed to just wanting to be all things to all people and not offend anyone by going in either direction. If it, if I thought it was being purposeful purposeful in its choice of just trying to tell it down the line, then I would feel better about it. But instead, it feel, like you said, it feels more like it just doesn't want to offend anyone and just wants to appeal to the broadest audience possible. And speaking of things that are an offensive hunter, I would like to uh, introduce a new segment that I actually believe I pitched uh, for Birdman and then we just never got around to. Uh, which is a a beer recommendation, a beer pairing mm-hmm. to go along with right. uh, with our movie reviews, and uh, much like you know the events in, uh, of the script of American Sniper, this should come as no surprise. I'm going to be recommending uh, Bud Heavy, absolutely. That is Budweiser, the original Budweiser, not not the Bud Light, but full on the Great American Lager. Now, from will. a can, from a tap, or from a bottle. Um, let's, I, I get, I gotta go can given Chris Kyle and Texas and that just feels appropriate, you know, um, you know, maybe in a sixer, let's say. Hey, okay. So um, if you were to see this picture at your home, you should be watching it with, with a six pack of Budweiser. Yeah. You know, because it's just, it's a, it's an inoffensive beer. It's, uh, it's not trying to do anything like it, it may beat its chest a little more than it should. Um, but if someone, if someone is to offer me, you know, a blue moon and a Budweiser, like a full blown Bud Heavy. I'm not talking like three point. I'll probably yeah. Why not? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, and here's, go my, here's what I love about it is it's Beechwood aged. Is I <laughs> right. love the fact right. that it's Beechwood aged. Okay, Chris. So let's let's finish off here. Your recommendation. Do you see American Sniper or not? Do you like it? Um, I I feel like if you were going to see American Sniper, you probably already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you haven't seen it yet, wait until it's on. You know, whatever uh, HBO or TNT or. Uh, or whatever. It's, it's not something you need to rush out and see as a cinematic experience. 
Um, and I would, I would uh, concur with that is since it's kind of not part of the, it, it's kind of fading as far as a water cooler talk kind of picture. I don't think that you need to see it in theaters. Uh, I applaud Bradley Cooper's performance and I think that the Iraq scenes, I actually kind of liked them, but I would say that once again, it's a matter of a weak script that a Clint Eastwood probably should have gone back to the drawing board and given a little bit more love before filming. But overall, like I said at the beginning, I'd say three and a half out of five. All right. Well, if you've seen American Sniper, uh, shoot us a line at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com and tell us what you think. Yes. Shoot us an email. Wink, wink. Well, anyway, stay tuned for our special feature segment when we talk about actors who direct. Sun and the moon The, the history of the actor-turned-director is long in Hollywood, beginning at the actually the very beginning with names like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And this felt like a good conversation given that American Sniper is, I believe, the 38th picture since the early 1970s for Clint Eastwood. Whenever you've done 38 pictures, you're not really an actor-turned-director anymore or an actor who directs, but you're almost an actor-slash-director in Clint Eastwood's case. Is, is that number correct? Is that actually yeah, true? Yeah, I believe is... he's, he's pushing 40. Okay. So he's he's done he's done a lot of pictures, some that you wouldn't even think he did. Right. For instance, you know, Bridges of Madison County. Uh, and then some that, of course, he did, like uh, Bronco Billy. Oh, yes, absolutely. A, a forgotten masterpiece. And I think I'm actually pretty close to seeing all 48. Maybe not some of the more recent ones. Uh, it's, but anyway, the, so like I said, the, the tradition of the actor who directs, actor turned director is lawn, and there, there's a lot of people who have done it, who shouldn't do it, and uh, those we'd like to see do it. So Chris, would you like to start us off with who you really like, an actor who turned director that you really admire right now? Uh, you know who I really like? I, he hasn't done, he's only done two films, um, but I think they're both marvelous pictures is uh, Richard Iowate. His debut feature submarine came out, I believe 2010. And then uh, just last year, the double with Jesse Eisenberg, um, which last year was sort of a year of actors playing two, uh, two roles with, with that and with uh, enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal. But uh, both of those films uh, among my favorite films of the years, well, and that, I've only seen out. I've only seen the latter, the double, and actually that was it was very it was a very directed movie, but and by that there's the the performances in it are very vibrant, and then also the camera work, the the visual design, the visual palette. Because whenever I think of actors turning directors, I almost uniformly think of people you've known of, people mm-hmm. people you recognize, you know their name, you know their face, and they do a very actory movie yeah they do a picture that's that's a real showcase for actors a kevin costner they, if you will yes well actually i'm not even sure i'd include kevin costner in that because his movies are very he the movies he's directed are very epic i'm talking more just a p- bunch of people talking okay kind of movies it's yeah. the way they make their debut picture is hey guys this 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 is just a showcase for people to uh to act yeah well and the thing that i really like about uh Iowate's work so far is uh, with Submarine, it felt very much like a, uh, I would say first and foremost, a Hal Ashby film, and then definitely secondarily uh, a Wes Anderson film. And 
Um, I think we talked about this last last time on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wes Anderson is one of those people that seems to be cribbed on constantly, particularly in sort of the indie movie scene, be mm-hmm. it from Napoleon Dynamite to, uh, you know, whatever. You know, people trying to uh, rip off his, his composition or his, his whatever. And Submarine, while it felt like uh, you could definitely see influence, he knew why he was making the decisions he was. He knew like why it wasn't just he was using the same aesthetics as Wes Anderson, but he was using them because he knew uh, how to effectively tell the story that way. You know, it was, it was all to a purpose. And then with something like the double, um, which you said, that's the only one you've seen. Yes, right? I've, yeah, I've seen that. Um, it doesn't feel like a Wes Anderson movie at all, really. It feels more like a Terry Gilliam movie or, or something like that. Another actor turned director. Yeah. Um, and uh, just I that almost that that kind of cemented it for me because it's it felt very much okay this guy's not a one trick pony he is really um maybe i mean honestly maybe more a director than an actor in my mind now well and that that will lead us into a distinction i i think i'd like to make here is i've been using the phrase actors who direct and so i've been thinking of guys like like you said a second ago kevin costner or a robert redford or a clint eastwood or a mel gibson or as you mentioned richard iote so do you th- are, are you thinking more uh people who they began their careers acting and now they're transitioning more into being directors um i guess or do not, you think people I mean, who dabble and and seem to show a degree of competency and popularity in both. I, I think we can talk about both. I, I I think there is probably a line to be drawn in you know someone like a like a Robert Redford or mm-hmm. um, someone like that versus or a, a John Turturro um, versus maybe someone like Richard Ayoade or um, John Favreau would be more a actor turned director or actually I'm trying to think did he, he did uh he almost may be a da- director turned actor but anyway go ahead well no he was I mean he was in uh Rudy he that's was right in, okay yeah Rudy you're right Rudy he, was, he was he was yeah. first and foremost an actor mm-hmm. um and just didn't have that great of an acting career and happened to take off as a director but you know more more director he still performs you know he was mm-hmm. in chef um right uh but so, yeah, I guess there is a distinction and Iowati definitely falls in the, the second one where more more director. But at the same time, um, I mean, for us in the States, uh, the IT crowd, you know, I, I'd be surprised, you know, to hear someone to be able to have a conversation with someone about it. But I think it was a pretty big deal, uh, you know, back in in uh, the UK when it when it was running. Um, I believe they're even actually trying to much like the office, trying to adapt it for an American audience right now. Um, but he was, you know, the co-star on that. And so I think you talk to someone there and he might still be a uh, a comedic celebrity of sorts. So it would almost be as if the sidekick in Two and a Half Men decided to become John a Cryer. Yes. If John Cryer decided to become a successful film director, that would be the equivalent of what's going on in the UK with Richard Iote. John Cryer from such movies as Hot Shots. Yes. Or part, uh, is he in both of them? I don't remember. I don't even he's, know his name. In, I just know him as the as number okay. two in Two and a Half Men. He's in he's in one of them. And I'm probably really offending British comedy fans because I haven't seen this show, but I'm I'm probably going to get uh, have my head on a pike for comparing this show to Two and a Half Men. So that was a mistake. Speaking of head on a pike, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is uh, another actor who directs, and he was actually going to be one I was uh, planning on mentioning. Is someone who I've always found really interesting. Is he is someone who does not direct 
movies that are really actory. Again, they're and they incredibly uh, they're incredibly epic. They have a a true visual sensibility. So you, you put him more in the in the Kevin Costner. Ke- well, I don't really camp. like anything Kevin Costner's done. I didn't Waterworld. Waterworld. Yeah, he didn't direct that actually. He didn't direct Waterworld. No, he are you direct, serious? He did do the Postman though. Have you ever okay. seen the Postman? I, I I haven't. I've actually I have heard good things. I, uh, I no it's, really. It, it's it's as okay. bad as Waterworld. All I'll say about the See, Postman. Waterworld I love though. Like I know it's a, I know it's a terrible movie, but I love it. He really didn't direct Waterworld. No, I've spent direct- all these years thinking he directed Waterworld. Wow, this is this is a uh, truly a groundbreaking moment in your development. But all I'll say about The Postman is it's set in a post-apocalyptic world in which Tom Petty plays a uh, dirigible operator who is Tom Petty. And he was Tom Petty in a former life before the world ended. And now he's Tom Petty still, but this is how he makes his living. Are you sure Kevin Costner directed this and not Jim Jarmusch? Maybe I'm, it, you know, maybe that's what he ghost, was trying. Ghost maybe, directed. Maybe that's Jim what he Jarmusch. was trying to. Well, actually, that's, that that raises another point of something that you see in uh and actors turn directors is this picture spoiler alert the postman ends with kevin costner's character having a statue built in his homage do you think that the actor turned director and he's starring in his picture do you think that that's an inherently arrogant thing to do or does it just depend on what happens in the picture and what the movie is i you know i don't know i i think uh when i think of the thespian the actor like it's more a narcissistic uh, occupation anyway mm-hmm. than, than a director. You know, a director is. See, I disagree because a, a narcissist, well, maybe, maybe more narcissistic in that they want to be viewed, whereas a director just wants you to see this world that he has created and populated and is putting into motion. Yeah. So actually, it's, it's all pretty arrogant activities. Um, who else? Other than Mel Gibson, uh, who, who did you have on your list? Well, another person I have on my list is a uh, another obvious entry is Ben Affleck, and I put Ben Affleck on here because his pictures convey a subtlety and a depth of thought that I would have never presumed from him. Because I'm still of the of the Ben Affleck view of the, he's he's a, he's a Benefer kind of actor, is that he is very much a Hollywood celebrity type, and that's all he's interested in being, and yet. Uh, his pit and but he wants to be taken seriously and so whenever i found that he was directing there was the i i rolled my eyes because i was assuming this was just a vain hollywood celebrity wanting to be taken seriously and the pictures he's done have actually been quite good and in fact uh argo won best picture i i i'm not i what i'm not over the moon with it with it but i still liked it it was it was decent it was okay i thought uh the town was not like the town felt sort of like a 70s b picture to mm-hmm. me and not to, but it was competent and it was capable. Yeah, no, it, it was, and you know, it probably knew what it was, and so for for that, it was fine. Um, confession: I've only seen parts of Gone Baby Gone. Uh, Another it, functional picture, yeah. Another is, is competent, it, okay, yeah, because yeah, I, I've sort of heard that that's his his real crowning achievement. Eh, I mean, um, if it is, it's it's not. You know, I'm I'm. Uh, that's another one I'm not over the moon with. I'm just more okay. just amazed that he didn't do something that was just a complete Mick G level disaster. Wherever you could tell he wanted to be viewed as a smarter director than he is, and then it Daredevil just didn't, two. Yes, exactly. Wherever you could tell he wanted wanted it to be better than it was, and it just didn't work. It actually they're they're perfectly good, solid. Yeah, you know, yeah. A, a, he's, a, he's a capable. I would say more capable than uh, Clint Eastwood anymore. Um, any, any, I mean, I think something like, uh, something like Unforgiven, um, works because the script is so good. There are still some really weird campy things. Like I would say the first, what, 30, 40 minutes, basically until, 
uh, English Bob shows up. Kind of, it's not, it's not terrible. It's certainly not as bad as the opening of American Sniper, but, um, not great. A lot of exposition, a lot of like, oh, I'm, I'm this old grizzled guy and my, uh, my wife, she turned me around and then God bless her. She died. And I gotta, I gotta live up to that. Uh, let me watch me try to catch this hog in the mud. Uh, there's, you know, just a lot of that set up. I, I felt could have been handled, not a lot of depth. Just could have been handled more delicately. Script, yeah. But uh, the dialogue is amazing. Gene Hackman is so good in that movie. I mean, just to go back to our, our very first episode. Yes, folks, if you uh, want to hear more about Gene Hackman and Chris Gallagher's irrational, not irrational, but com- completely rational devotion to the man, go to our first episode. Uh, but he's so good. He's so good in that movie and sort of has a has an interesting arc um, as a character that. Um, you start out liking for the most part, and then he sort of disintegrates over time. And, uh, you know, just a, a solid, a very solid picture, um, much better than, than American Sniper. But I think a lot of that is due to the credit of, uh, of the script. Uh, what about someone like, uh, Mel Brooks? Where would you put him in our little boxes that we've made of, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. And I, think that, I think that goes back to the, the dudes we were talking about earlier, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, of uh, just people who direct comedy. And so their comedy is so unique to them that no one else could really direct it. Yeah. They have to they have to they have to film their style of comedy. Well, and his his style isn't even just comedy. I mean, it's it's comedic musicals. I mean, can you think of a Mel Brooks picture that doesn't have a few a few musical numbers in it. Even if it doesn't, it has that musical quality to it. Yeah, that kind of that very lithe, that that lithe, uh, almost flamboyant taste to it. And then another director who, uh, in that as part of that conversation, would be someone like Woody Allen, who I don't think, and it's been probably since the '60s or the '70s since he was in a picture that he didn't direct, just because his directing style is so. Communi- it, it's able to communicate his comedic style. And, you know, I think comparing Woody Allen to someone like Eastwood is interesting because Woody Allen seems to be seems to be very hands off as you, know, you always hear stories of uh, actors who um, say he doesn't really give me much direction. He, you know, he'll talk about, uh, you know, Woody Allen or Clint Eastwood, Woody Allen. OK, I, I they say that about Clint Eastwood as well. Uh-huh. But yeah, absolutely. The actors seem to still find some sort of. Inspiration, I suppose, you know, maybe to go back to beat this dead horse, go back to the script. Maybe it's because Woody Allen puts enough vibrancy in the script. And and so it's there on the page for them. That's that's what they're able to grasp onto. And he has such a ubiquitous style um, that uh, it the the actors are able to get through it without much direction yeah without without much direction they're able to they and then they're in that uh, nurturing environment and speaking of nurturing environment is even though he's a hands-off director maybe it's just he's able to be a hands-off director because he's such a hands-on parent such a hands-on stepfather oh, no. that he has to be that he has to be a hands-off director oh <laughs> no hunter um okay what? well that's i'm not even i'm not gonna touch it gonna We're, be hands off i'm gonna be hands off all right okay so uh, what about, do you have any suggestions for actors that you would like to see direct? You know, an actor who I think would have a, a couple actors who I'd like to see direct Meryl Streep, as far as the, a very actory picture, I think she'd do a good job with it. Now, what? maybe a situation where the actors are so intimidated by their director and their director's, uh, well, well, well known abilities that they might 
be a little hampered because I think, of that. I think she would be nurturing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think if, if she was to direct something like a, a stage play adaptation would, would make sense. No, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and, and probably a well-known show. Right. As well, but not something completely obscure. Cats. Cats, for instance. Meryl Streep should direct Cats with Cats because Cats will not be intimidated by her uh, her abilities. Oh, ooh. Uh, I don't know. Francois Truffaut might have some other words to say about Cats as actors. Is he still alive? Would he have any, no. have any words? Okay, then, yeah. And I don't, speaking of hands-off directing, oh, uh, another director that or another person that I'd like to see uh, direct is, and, uh, you know, we mention him every time, but this is how I feel about it, is I would like to see Nicolas Cage direct particularly if it particularly if it's not a actory picture but a action movie if it's him acting in the action picture that no one casts or that he always wants to be in and he shouldn't be in a, a john rambo like picture if nicholas cage were to so model Nicola- sylvester stallone and direct himself in a action movie nicholas cage to see that. directing a nicholas cage feature yes. like a nicholas cage vehicle okay because i looked this up and nicholas cage actually has directed and one I film figured i figured yeah uh it's called sunny i know nothing else about it other than it got really terrible reviews do you that sounds vaguely familiar it's kind of reminds me of uh, like house of d i don't know if you've ever seen house of no. d it's uh david duchovny i'm not even sure i've seen it maybe i've just heard, read interviews about it and so i think i've seen it but david duchovny directed it and it's a movie about uh him him visiting this place where he used to be a uh or you were uh, this this detention center where he used to be a child and doing flashbacks to him as a kid and his wife Taya leone plays his mom so he's he, his his wife is playing his mom essentially. Okay. okay. Um, well, make up that what you will. What about are there any actors that you think uh, you would never want to see direct? I say I say never. I would I wouldn't want to see the movie. I'd want to see the behind the scenes. But Daniel Day Lewis would be very very interesting because I don't know what character he would occupy as a director if he would occupy the uh, mercurial tyrannical director and be re- be really dictatorial with his actors or if he would try and be himself or if he'd be the nor- more nurturing director i just know that he would go full method and be the director so you think we're going to get like a uh hearts of darkness or a exactly i'm more interested in or, or uh lost in la mancha i'm more interested in the making of picture okay. of a daniel day lewis than i am in the finished product because the okay. finished product's just not probably not going to work okay well for me uh I only had one actor that I I thought it'd be interesting. I would love to see what he would do. And uh, that is Bill Hader. And uh, this actually came up, not not an obvious choice, I think, but I was... Mostly we just want Bill Hader to love us. Yes. Uh, An Okie boy uh, from from our hometown. Yes. So if you're loving us, Bill Hader, we love you. Or if you're listening to this, Bill Hader, we love you. But he was recently on The Moment with Brian Koppelman, um, a pretty great bod- podcast that I just recently discovered uh, with screenwriter Brian Koppelman, who I think, I don't know what all he has to his credit, uh, Rounders. I know he, he wrote, I'm not sure what else beyond that. doesn't matter. But uh, in the interview, he was talking about how um, he actually saw himself, you know, he kind of grew up as a cinephile mm-hmm. and um, he initially saw himself as a director, even whenever he was doing um you know, acting, doing comedy, doing, uh, doing sketch, all of these things in his mind, he was just a director who hadn't directed yet. And so the fact that he, I I mean, I think he mentions that he has, uh, accepted that that's, 
you know, perhaps not his path, not his absolute, you know, career because acting is clearly paying the bills for him. Uh, but the fact that he has that sort of mind and, you know, to hear him talk about, uh, about cinema, it's not just, you know, like, Oh, Hey, I, I saw the, you know, the new thing that's out, you know, he's really, he's talking about Stanley Kubrick. He's talking about, he's knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. He, I imagine a, a Bill Hader picture would probably be a lot like, uh, garden state or one of those Zach oh, Brack man, movies. You think so? Yeah, I honestly do. And you know, if it'd be about Oklahoma, terrific then. I, I don't know. Cause I, I think I, that's what he would do. He was, I, he'd make sooner state. I think, I think he could do better than that. I, I hope he'd be better than that, but I think it'd be that breed of picture of just a, a, a wanderlust kind of 30 something doesn't really know where he is. Maybe I, I hope we'll see. And honestly, you know, people talk a lot of crap about garden state. I kind of like it. You know, I, no, I, I do like it. I, I don't think it's, you know, a I feel award about, worthy. I feel of, about garden state the way I feel about the garden state, New Jersey, and that there's nice parts, but you never see it. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. How about this actors who absolutely should never direct in your book? Uh, you know, I, I gave a lot of thought to this and I couldn't come up with anyone that just really stuck out to me as should, should never step foot behind the camera. But I would say it's safe to say John Cryer should never uh, really direct a film. Yeah. Well, then that was a pretty foolish thing to say because now we are going to absolutely be flamed with hate mail based on John Cryer. So ladies and gentlemen, John Cryer fans, the Billions of you out there, please direct your animosity to Chris on this one, because I do not feel that way about him. I think he's a very talented, great American artist. Hey, hey, Hunter, tell me, uh, what are the John Cryer fans uh, called? You know, the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's fans are known as the Cumberbitches, which Um, he finds. Is there there a correct answer? I, I have no idea. I would I would actually say Cryer babies. Okay, yeah, yeah Cryer Babies. Cryer Babies would be so. A you good Cryer one. Babies, all you Cryer Babies out there who are offended by my. Uh, you know, my neglect to see the the true vision that will one day be John Cryer's directorial debut. Um, you know, send your hate mail to me at hello at war starts at midnight dot com. And uh, let's start this dialogue. And even if you are not a Cryer baby, you can still send us an email. Who do we miss? Who's the best? Who's the worst? And who should and shouldn't direct? Let us know by emailing us at hello at war starts at midnight dot com. And stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. Well, Hunter, we have successfully reached the end of yet another show. And it was almost as sloppy as American Sniper, but we still reached the end of it. We got here, you know, and uh, in celebration, let's do what we always do and leave the listeners with a couple recommendations to uh, go out and seek out. So uh, I'll let you start. What do you you got Absolutely. I would like to recommend a picture from the early 90s. I believe it is from 1990, in fact, just before Unforgiven. It is directed by Clint Eastwood and is a picture called White Hunter Black Heart. White Hunter Black Heart is based on the making of the African Queen. Clint Eastwood plays a loose uh, uh, impersonation, almost, of John Huston. The director in this picture is known as John Wilson. And so it's Clint Eastwood directing a picture about another actor-turned-director, John Huston. I'm actually surprised we didn't talk about him. But an uh, a actor directing himself playing another actor-turned-director. So it's a real... Uh, 
odd meta kind of situation. It's not the best picture in the world, but it is uh, an interesting viewing experience. There's a lot of random Clint Eastwood, given that he's done 38 pictures. There's a lot of pictures, I, uh, other movies I could have picked, but I thought that this one was the one I would recommend above all others uh, If you, as far as obscure Clint Eastwood work. So White Hunter, Black Heart. Okay. Well, uh, my recommendation is one that... Honestly, I don't have much of a tie-in for. Uh, it's just something that I happen to finally catch up with. It's uh, a film that I've been meaning to see for several years now. And that's the 1963 Paul Newman film, HUD, uh, directed my, by Martin Ritt. Uh, this is a really beautiful film, uh, shot in, I believe, Panavision, you know, a 235 widescreen um, takes place in Texas in, I believe, the 50s or 60s mm-hmm. uh, on a ranch. And just amazing, beautiful black and white, lush black and white landscapes, vistas uh, that just captures sort of a uh, a time, a place uh, beautifully. And uh, and it's Paul Newman in the 1960s when and that was a t- that was a time period wherever he was hitting out of the park. with Oh, yeah. Everything. 60s Newman is sort of like just just a perfect sweet spot for me. And the thing that I really liked about his performance in this film is it has a uh, sort of interesting arc in that. I mean, this is, you know, early sixties. So this is really before uh, we're getting into even something like cool hand Luke, where, you know, Newman's playing this lovable anti-hero um, or, you know, Everything, He's really not likable in this picture. Everything in, in the 70s where everyone's yeah. playing a, a lovable anti-hero. He starts out as a character that you really uh, you really like and really like you want to be around. He seems like a fun sort of dude uh, that maybe raises some hell, but you'll have a good time with him. And as the film progresses, it just gets darker and darker. Right. I guess sort of like, uh, you know, I was talking about Gene Hackman's evolution in uh, Unforgiven, a lot like that, but I, I would say even worse, like by the end, you really sort of hate this character and um, there's nothing redeeming about him. And uh, I just thought it was a fascinating way to sort of take that character arc that you're used to always seeing where maybe you start out with a guy who's sort of a bad dude and then he's redeemed in the end here the opposite yeah here you flip it and you start out with a guy who you like you want to spend some time with and then by the end you don't want anything to do with him so that's hud uh it's available right now on amazon prime to stream uh if you have that service so check it out and that concludes another episode of war starts at midnight check us out online at war starts at midnight.com there you can find links to follow us on twitter and facebook and keep up with our Tumblr, where I just posted a gif of Gary Cooper throwing up fisticuffs in a silk top hat in the aforementioned Howard Hawks film, Ball of Fire. And if you like the show, help us out by rating us on iTunes. If you hate the show, or if you have any other questions or comments, please let us know. We're very lonely. We're kind of like the person at the other end of a Match.com profile. Tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Music on this week's show comes from the album Sons of Men by Ruben's Accomplice. It's my favorite album of the decade so far, so check them out at rubensaccomplice.com. And we'll be back in two weeks to discuss what should be a knee-slapping family comedy from the one and only David Cronenberg, Maps to the Stars. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
And we'll be back in two weeks to discuss Maps to the Stars, which should be another knee-slapping family comedy from Dana... Dana. Dumbass.